I'm a card-carrying basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. Just stood next to Big Poppy and be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. Welcome to the Wharton Moneyball Postgame Podcast. I'm your host, Professor Adi Weiner of the Department of Statistics at the Wharton School of Business of the University of Pennsylvania. This is our last postgame podcast for 2016. And our course, as, as always, is a crash course in our major themes from our two-hour program, which was a lot of recap of 2016. You can hear our show, Wharton Moneyball, live on Wednesday mornings at 8 a.m. Eastern Time. And you'll hear the whole gang, Kate Massey, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, and of course, myself, Adi Weiner. And this week, we had a couple of really interesting guests. We had a fellow Penn professor, David Dingus, who's a professor and head of the Division of Sleep and Chronobiology, and the director of the Unit for Experimental Psychiatry. He's a professor who specializes in sleep, and he was our first guest. And our second guest was the return to our roots, Neil Payne. Neil Payne is a writer for 538.com, and he's on the 538 podcast Hot Takedown, and he's actually produced some of his own podcasts, which are really terrific. And Neil was one of the first uh, guests we had on our show way back when we started two and a half years ago. So we're going to hear from from uh, Neil Payne, and then we have a special bonus towards the end of our podcast. So let's go to our first clip with David Dingus. I make the claim, and I'm pretty sure the claim is true, although maybe I was sleeping at the time. I claim I've never slept past 8 o'clock in the morning uh, any day in my entire life. And that includes during high school. That includes during college. Even if I was out till 2 in the morning, I was just one of those people that just can't sleep late. So that's the third element. So how much sleep do you need biologically? How resistant are you to the effects of inadequate sleep where you can keep functioning? And then the third one is, what's your circadian timing? And that, that's very genetic. And uh, there are people that do what, exactly what you say. So you've got more of a lark or early signal circadian system. And it's the circadian system, the 24-hour clock in, in every cell in our body that's coordinated that wakes us up in the morning and uh, in general, and if, uh, assuming we don't have a massive sleep debt, but, but in general. And the fact that what you just said is suggests that you have a very robust circadian clock. It's not as early as some, but it's pretty early and it's pretty robust. Well, let me ask you another related question. Then I want to relate uh, sleep to sports and a part of what we're doing here. You mentioned the average person gets seven hours. This is a question I've always wanted to ask. And again, we're talking to Professor David. Well, no, Di- I should I should correct myself. The oh. average person is getting about six and a half. Ah. It's seven that's needed to maintain health. So, so we, the population's a little short on sleep. Oh, okay. So American population you're talking about, or is this... Uh, uh, American, okay. American in particular. That's where all the data is on our side of the pond. So there's a little background. Dr. Dinges was telling us a lot about the distribution of sleep needs. And and uh, one of the, I guess, uh, fun facts we got to learn was that the average person needs about seven hours of sleep, but uh, tends to get a bit less than that, six and a half hours of sleep. There's a chunk, 20%, that can do 
regularly with a lot less, and there's a chunk, 20% or so, that can do regularly with a lot or needs a lot more. Um, and we actually delved into some really interesting topics, which is the effect on on your performance when you're sleep deprived. And it turns out there are some people who really start to fall apart when they haven't gotten sleep and others who really could use more sleep but simply are, don't deteriorate um, and they are able to function pretty well on sleep. Eric was was questioning Dr. Dinges about his own behavior, which is essentially that he gets up all, early in the morning all the time, and that's biological. So here's a second clip from Dr. Dinges. Can, you know, I have a high schooler, I've had high schoolers, um, sometimes they don't go to bed till 1, 2 in the morning doing work, they have to get up at 7, but on the weekends they, they, catch, up, up. they catch up. That's right. Is that a true thing? Can you catch up on sleep? Is 5 times 5 hours plus 2 times 10 the same thing as 7 times 6 and a half? So it's a standard scientist answer, yes and no. So here's- <laughs> <laughs> You're a winner. <laughs> this is great. This is great. Yeah, we'd like to hear the yes and the no. There, there's no question there is something called sleep homeostatic drive, that it builds up and you can fall asleep when you're, when you're sleep deprived. You can fall asleep faster, uh, stay asleep longer, and, but eventually you will wake up. So even if you haven't slept for days and you sleep, you can't sleep 24 hours. Your circadian system will wake you up. And uh, you may be only awake for five or six hours and then go back to sleep again. But the bottom line is that the system responds with a pressure release. And you sleep longer, and, and you'll often need that for a couple of days or more uh, to really fully recover. So there you have it. Eric asked Dr. Dinges a, a, you know, pretty much a straightforward question. Can you get your 45 hours of sleep in a week in short segments and then catch up with some long ones or what's the deal? And the answer actually is, I guess, a little bit of both. You can, there is a homeostasis and that's the idea that if you undersleep, you're going to need, it's required of you to catch up, but you can't oversleep because of the circadian rhythm. So you can't do, you know, six, two hour segments and try to catch up with one 24 hour segment. That's not going to work because your body's going to force yourself to wake itself up. So that's what he meant by having two answers, a yes and a no to that question. But it is important to recognize that if you do undersleep for a number of days, you will be forced to catch up later on. And that, of course, segues or connects to the earlier points he made about sleep, which is that your performance does deteriorate. So if you try to do those very short under sleep days consecutively, you're going to start to function at a much less than optimal level. And here's our last clip with Dr. Dinges. What do we know about the relationship between sleep, rest, and let's say athletic performance on the field? Kind of if you could give us the highlights in your field, what's kind of known about that? Not very much. And by wow. that, I mean, we know a lot about sleep. We know a lot about performance and psychomotor speed. Very little of this stuff has been applied to sports. And this is astonishing. There's a little bit of work that one of my colleagues at Harvard has done with sports teams traveling across time zones to play on the East Coast. The jet lag that causes, the disruption of sleep it causes the night before, and the effect that can have on games are some studies of point differentials uh, on when professional teams have to travel across time zones. But the, the reality of how much sleep team members are getting and how well they're performing and what their actual psychomotor speed is tested on. So we have a simple little test that will tell us with extreme precision how fast you actually, 
how fast you can see a signal, process it, and, and respond to it immediately. Um, those things are extremely rare. I'm, actually, I'm appalled by this. David, I'm gonna, we've had on our show, our show is in our, we've been doing the show for three and a half three, years. Is it that long already? Yes. It's amazing. And I will tell you that uh, we've interviewed um, companies that have started to track athletes, and one of the prominent features of these systems is something called, the, I think it's called the Whoopi, or what is it called? The, yeah. I forget, that, that essentially tracks sleep. And I don't believe that it does a very good job of sleeping, but it's, it's essentially correlating and trying to understand the relationship between between performance and sleep, and the teams yeah. are buying it. They're way. It they sounds like they're way out in front of you, but they're not. Of course, they're not rigorous. Well, not really, because we, thirty-five years ago, we actually used the first tracking device, the movement device that records in milliseconds, and we use that routinely. But we do this for federal agencies. So we did a study on you know, two hundred fifty um, uh, transportation workers and tracked them all over the United States continuously every thirty milliseconds. And we know exactly how much they slept and when they slept and how alert they were. And we're doing that now with uh, with uh, interns and residents in hospitals across the country. We can track any population with the technical devices you wear. It's just that a lot of the stuff that's sold as sort of jewelry, chic, uh, biofeedback stuff and that uh, doesn't have the engineering rigor of the stuff we use. I guess it's important to correct for the record that our show is only two and a half years not three and a half. And the company that I reference is not Whoopi. That's a, sort of an absurd name. It's called Whoop. And they are they sell technology, tracking technology that they do prominently, per, you know, represent uh, will track sleep and not only not only sleep itself, but also stages of sleep. These are technologies that have not been tested rigorously. Um, there is, I guess, according to Dr. Dindris, there is a technology that they've had for quite some time, which is very high-end uh, um, engineering devices that, that check motion, um, and they use that and have been using that to track individual sleep. But the point really is, the, the robust point is that professional athletes have not been studied by the academic sleep community, and so there's, it's a vast open research domain and maybe we'll see progress made on that in the coming years. I know here at University of Pennsylvania there's a quite a substantial sleep program led by someone who I've collaborated with extensively, Dr. Alan Pack, and there are people working on human beings like David Dinges, and there are also people like Dr. David Raisin who works on the minuscule uh, worms, and then there of course there's a whole army of people working on on mice and other animals. So let's uh, put the sleep behind us, and let's move on to our next guest, which was Neil Payne. And here is a terrific clip from Neil. What's your biggest upset of 2016? One that jumped into my mind was, and I mentioned it earlier, uh, the Cavs over the Warriors in the NBA Finals, just because, especially if we take into account the circumstance that those teams uh, at one point found themselves in and of course you know now the 3-1 deficit has become kind of its own meme uh but but to be down 3-1 uh and facing the number of home games remaining that the Cavs had to play at the Warriors a team that had scarcely lost all season at home uh, and, and of course, the Warriors being the winningest regular season team in NBA history, 
I, I think it just was a colossal upset um, if we're talking about the history of the NBA uh, in particular. What's interesting, Neil, about that example is, and you accurately pointed out, if I had told you at the beginning of the series, you know, the Cavs would win, you would say, well, not likely, maybe, I think the odds were maybe two-thirds, one-thirds, but as you're now talking about, you're a Bayesian, you updated, the Cavs are down 3-1 with two road games coming up. At that point, your odds have to be significantly below 10%, and at that point, and as you're pointing out, it had never been done. So that's kind of, I think... Coming back from 3-1? to one? It had never, never been happened. done. Never happened in the NBA Finals. So, Neil, what you're pointing out is, in some sense, there was the a priori odds, and then maybe what made it even more spectacular was the path to get to 4-3. to three. So, Neil really focused on the, uh, the Cavs' upset of the Warriors as his top upset of 2016, and he actually had a... a basically a two-armed measure of analysis. He said the first part is probability. It has to obviously be an unusual event. And I think this satisfies that. I I think Neil tossed out the number 10% that the Cavs would overcome the Warriors being down 3-1, to even if they had two road games to play. I would actually estimate that probability is lower. The 3-1 to comeback had never happened before. The Warriors were an all-time great team, especially at home. And so I would have estimated it more like 1 in 20, but 1 in 20 events do happen. Um, So the second piece that Neil wanted to incorporate into his definition of a tremendous upset is also significance and what could be more significant than the finals of the NBA, the last games of the the seven-game series. So put the two together, the tremendous significance of the finals and the great importance of of basketball. It's a tremendous sport. It's not an obscure sport. And finally, the rareness of the event. You put the two together and you get Neil's number one 2016 upset. Well, there are other upsets that happened in 2016. Let's hear Neil on another. So, Neil, we've talked about the Cavs defeating the Warriors. We've talked about Leicester City. Anything else strike you in 2016 before we kind of move to historical upsets? Anything else catch you this year? Well, I mean, the the year of 2016 was the year of the upset just in general. I mean, if we're kind of applying it outside of sports even, like yeah, the obvious one is Trump winning the presidency. I mean, that was something that... Uh, my boss, Nate Silver, pegged with very low odds, and, and the betting markets uh, agreed on that. Yep. Uh, and, and pretty much any model, any uh, predictive you know, apparatus that you had, up to and including like the night of the election, had his odds uh, Close extremely to it. low. Yeah, well, I have uh, to tell you, this is something that we spoke about on our show at length. And uh, I mean, I was quite vocal in my opposition to those models. I thought they were really wrong and they were completely misspecified and that his chances of winning were much closer to even Steven. In fact, I, I went and talked about that on the show, yep. both on Facebook and and, 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 and and the problem there was just the inability to, to grapple with the failure of the models over this past couple of years. And, and that really, again, talks about this model specification when you when you if you take the past information and you wrap it into a, a probabilistic framework and then you then then that tells you that something has essentially very low probability it could be because they really do have very low probability or it could be that you just don't have the right model and i think when it comes to elections there's been a, a sea change in the the quality of the the well the correlation of the polls and the outcomes and we've seen that in the last couple of years and that's that was really the problem this has been a a, a, a change point for our analysis 
Right, and I suppose it's not like, you know, in baseball where you get to test your predictive model again and again and again over the course of of a season and multiple seasons and this, that, and the other. You only get a crack at this once every four years when it comes to presidential models. And, uh, you know, but I think given what uh, we all knew or thought we knew going into not, not just the general election, but uh, if you go back even further than that and the beginning of the Republican primary, I do think that, I mean, you have to say that his odds were very low, like in terms of looking at like candidates like him had had never made it even uh, a fraction as far as he did toward the nomination even. And that's kind of what sticks out in my mind. Okay, the election. Wow. It was an upset, and it grew as an upset in certain levels, but that's because we, I guess, we really look, didn't really look at the data that was staring at us. During the primary season, Trump was outpolling everyone, and Nate Silver just ignored it. I mean, all the pundits did, and they, they said, listen, a guy like this isn't going, to, isn't going to win. I mean, there's no history of a person like this winning, and they dismissed it. And I mean, I'm not going to you know, second guess that that decision, I probably would have been making it as as well. But I think in the general election, there was there was lots of evidence that suggested that the models were wrong. And while Neil's point about there being only one presidential election every four years, there is indeed only one one presidential election every four years. But there were other elections that took place in other countries where there were tremendous upsets. The Brexit election was an upset. The English parliamentary elections were an upset. The Colombia um, referendum on the deal with the with the with the narcotics uh, um, terrorists, if you will, that was an upset. And Israel, there was a tremendous upset. And what I mean by an upset is that the polls didn't match the outcome, and the and the lack of agreement was really substantive. And so the issue for a statistician, and what can we learn from this, is where can we borrow information? So there is only one presidential election every four years. So when you're looking at the analysis, or I guess strictly, you deal only with the presidential elections. And I think that's the wrong approach, that there are other venues that can provide data. And those venues provided data that suggested that the models were not working right. And I think that's one of the reasons why there was such a... um, a mismatch between what the polls were saying here and what the pundits were doing with it, what Nate Silver, what Sam Wang, what lots of of electoral forecasts, uh, machines, statisticians doing this, what they were missing was the inability to take that information and wrap that into their own forecasts. Enough of the election. Our last clip is a special guest. Eric um, brought to our show today his high school age son, Zach Bradlow. And he actually had an interesting focus. He wanted to ask Zach what he thought about some of the great upsets of yesteryear and if Zach even really knew anything about them. So here's our last clip with Zach. Let's start with one that's near and dear to Adi in my heart. The U.S. defeating the Soviet Union in the 1980 in hockey, which, by the way, to remind everybody, was the semifinal game. They still had to win a finals game against Sweden. So when I say that, as a 16-year-old... Do you what, even what, know about yeah, this? Yeah, what do, you, do you know about it, and what do you think? Yeah, obviously I know about it. Uh, U.S. versus Soviet Union in 1980, and so the miracle on ice. And I think that's... Like, I'd say most people would know about that one, and I think the importance, I think, of young people learning about things, I think... Uh, it's got to be instrumental to the 30 for 30 series because they really go through like each kind of historical event of past times and 
watching those like enables me to hear about things of the past and so also i think movies tv and media like i know there's been a lot of movies about the miracle on ice including so. miracle on right, ice so let me ask exactly, you a question yeah. what, so what made it such a miracle well, I think just because of the global conflict at the time, the fact that the U.S. Okay, so the significance. Go, yeah. If you talk about Neil Payne's two aspects, there's certainly the significance and, and the, the, the Cold War component. But how about right. from a perspective of an athlete? Why was it so unlikely that the United States hockey team couldn't beat the Russian hockey team? So what was going well, on back then? Do you know about it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure the Russian team hadn't lost in a very long time. Yeah, but why? How come, how come the Russians were so much better than the United States team? Do you, do, I'm not sure that kids today sure know, know why. I assume no. it would be, but, well, they had a very good training program at the time. And actually, if you look at the number of professional players on that team That's versus, like, yeah. the U.S. Yeah. had a bunch, I'll make this up, 15 players that are a 7 on a 1 to 10 scale, and the Russians had 10 players that were a 10 well, on a 1 to 10 well, scale. Well, the difference was, and this is what I don't think that, that, that kids today are appreciative of this, is that historically the Olympics was only supposed to be for amateurs. Right. And right. If, yeah. once you took any money, you were uneligible to be, to be in the Olympics. And so mm-hmm. the, Yan- the, the Yankees, sorry, the uh, <laughs> American team was was college kids. That's right. who we were. That's who they were. The professionals, anyone who had been paid a dime to be a hockey player was ineligible to play right. for any team. But the Russians paid their t- their their right. on the side. And this yeah. was the classic Cold War. We'll, we will dominate in athletics by essentially subverting the rules by paying them in, in ways that, that weren't um, uh, measurable. And then they that, and that's why they're professional players. And this was the, this was one an amazing gap. It's essentially a, a college team beating a team of professionals. Yep. That is something that has really been undone. I guess in the name of fairness, I mean, you, if you can't beat them, essentially you join them. I mean, the, 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 the Iron Curtain essentially created a system whereby they paid their athletes without anybody noticing. And so they had these terrific professional level teams and they're playing against the Western teams, which were basically, I mean, were amateurs. And, and as a result, were almost entirely made up of, of, of college age kids. And that and then, of course, they couldn't stop them from from their system. So they just end up deciding that the Olympics is going to be the best athletes and it doesn't matter if they're paid or not. But it used to be in some level fun because the basketball competition was the, the Soviet bests. And those were their professional ba- uh, basketball players versus the United States college kids. And and that was a decent competition. The United States college kids were about the same level as the best Russian or the USSR teams were able to produce. But then we had the, the first dream team. And that was the team that where they're they lifted the amateur restriction and then it became anyone. And those American dream teams are just so dominant and so much better than, than the rest of the world that it became less of an interesting contest. Well, that concludes our final Wharton Moneyball postgame podcast for 2016. We will not uh, be recording a new show until the new year. And you can hear the full show. We'll put, post the entire show uh, on SoundCloud and on the Apple Store under podcasts, as well as, of course, the postgame podcast. I would suggest that you check out our live show on Wednesday mornings from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. on Sirius XM's business radio channel 111. The broadcast will be repeated throughout the week. Until then, enjoy your sports and enjoy your statistics.